crush manna fell to the ground as a gift from God. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, this is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can taste and smell fresh manna. Today you'll be listening to Pastor Sean Grisendine, pastor of the Houghton Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. Now, here's Pastor Sean. Happy Sabbath. Praise the Lord. It's a blessing to be gathered here for worship on this beautiful Sabbath morning. And I just invite you to kneel with me as we open in prayer, ask for the Holy Spirit to teach us as we begin a journey to the sanctuary and to his gates. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your infinite love that you revealed to us through Christ. And we're grateful for the opportunity we have to delve into your word and to see the plan of salvation so clearly through the sanctuary where Jesus is lifted up. And I pray that as he is lifted up, that you would hide me behind his cross, that your atoning blood will cleanse us from our sins, and that our hearts and minds will be prepared to partake also of the communion service this Sabbath. We thank you, Lord. May your spirit be our teacher and guide now. In Jesus' name, amen. It was really an amazing experience. The year was 2010. I had the opportunity to be in multiple states, Idaho, Georgia, California, and Oregon. And I was traveling with a full-scale model of the Mosaic Sanctuary with a ministry called Messiah's Mansion. I remember it very distinctly because I had actually been trained to give full-scale tours, about an hour and 15 minutes each tour, and walk people through the different pieces of furniture and how they all revealed Jesus. And so... We're having the opportunity, starting this Sabbath, to begin a journey, a series, called Through the Sanctuary. We're going to be focusing in on the first part, and that is the gate. And I think about how all the different pieces of furniture, all that was used and composed in this structure was to point us to Christ, the Lamb of God. And if we understand the sanctuary, it's going to help us to understand the times in which we're living and the present truth for our time. I remember when I was at the session that was being held in Atlanta, Georgia, they had two full-scale models of the Mosaic Sanctuary right across from, at the time, the general conference session. So I got to meet people from around the world that were coming to take one of these tours. And we were actually passing out, you know, when I say we, those who were helping with this ministry were passing out little bookmarks that had this quote on it as to why is the sanctuary important? What, what does this relate to, you know, even like the communion service? It's totally relevant. And you'll see this more clearly. In this statement, this is from the book Early Writings, page 63, paragraph 2, that says, But such subjects as the sanctuary, in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. In other words, this is important for us to focus in on. And it seems fitting for us to turn to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which is that great Advent hope text of the culmination of the 2,300 days, because as it relates to the Old Testament sanctuary and Jesus as our sacrifice, which the communion service is to commemorate Christ as our sacrifice, but it's much more meaningful when you realize that his sacrifice was only beginning, what he would continue to do in heaven for us. Daniel chapter 8, we're looking at verse 14. 
Daniel 8, verse 14, and the scripture tells us, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, I have to realize some of the, the context of this. As the years 1843 and 1844 were rolling on, and the Millerite movement, the Advent movement was really getting steam, there were a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people throughout North America, and there were other places in the world that were heralding this soon coming of Jesus. They were longing for the coming of Jesus. And they genuinely believed that this cleansing, spoken of in Daniel 8.14, was the cleansing of the earth when Jesus would return. You can imagine the disappointment when Jesus did not return on October 22, 1844. The dates are right, but the event was kind of off. Similar to what happened to the disciples when they expected Jesus to be coronated king and he died on the cross. The disappointment was just the emotions, the pain, the suffering, and yet God had actually prophesied that this was going to happen. You can read about in Revelation 10. Along those lines, I'd like to also bring in, as we're laying the foundation for our series here, a quote from the book Great Controversy, page 423, paragraph 1. It says, The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. As the disciples of Jesus, after the terrible night of their anguish and disappointment, were glad when they saw the Lord, so did those now rejoice who had looked in faith for his second coming. They had expected him to appear in glory to give reward to his servants. As their hopes were disappointed, they had lost sight of Jesus, and with Mary at the sepulcher they cried, They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Now in the Holy of Holies they again beheld him, their compassionate high priest, soon to appear as their king and deliverer. Light from the sanctuary illumined the past, the present, and the future. They knew that God had led them by his unerring providence. Though, like the first disciples, they themselves had failed to understand the message which they bore, yet it had been in every respect correct. In proclaiming it, they had fulfilled the purpose of God, and their labor had not been in vain in the Lord. Begotten again unto a lively hope, they rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, as we contemplate this, why is this significant as we think about the sanctuary? Well, for one, many people, when they talk about the sanctuary, they read it in the book of Exodus, which we'll be looking at. They often be like, well, that was for the Israelites, but what relevance does it have for us? It's very relevant. And the better you understand it, the better you're prepared to not only embrace all that Christ is to you, but understand what he's doing for us now. Notice in that quote that I just read from the Great Controversy, that the sanctuary was the key. It's interesting because if you're trying to get into a door and you don't have the right key, you're going to try and try again and you'll seem to always be shut out. And I would have to be very honest. If you look at the larger Christian world, there are many people that long for Jesus to return, but they don't really know why he's not here yet. They're not really clear on some of the key prophecies. But in light of the sanctuary, all this begins to be very clear. We see that there is a specific reason as to what Jesus is doing now for us. He's blotting out the record of sins while he prepares a people to live holy lives through the time of trouble such as never was. So we have the privilege to not only see the meaning of this, but its relevance to our lives today. So we're beginning a journey, and that journey begins with entering into his gates with praise and thanksgiving. In Psalm 100, we begin in verse 4. We notice that Jesus, through his psalmist, was inviting us to enter and approach God in praise. And it's a fitting way to start our journey. Psalm 100 and verse 4, the invitation is given, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, 
and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Now, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were in the very presence of God, if you look at the way the Eden experience was for them, that garden was their sanctuary. They met with God face to face. But as soon as sin intercepted that communion, because if we go to Isaiah 59, verse 2, why do we need this sanctuary? Why is God given this plan for restoration? Well, Isaiah 59, 2 is very clear as to what has come between us and God. And the sanctuary is God's divine remedy for the sin issue centered in the experience of Christ. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. God wants to hear us. God wants to be with us. But if he was to manifest his full glory to us, even right now, we could not bear it. So in mercy to us, he veils himself, and he chose to do that through the sanctuary, that there would be a way for us to be restored to communion with God. That first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was a promise of supernatural power to be able to hate sin, which is not natural to us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we'll notice that through the sanctuary, the experience of those who would approach God in this way would begin to realize sin is really bad. It hurts. It causes death. The wages of sin is death. So Genesis 3.15, God wants to implant a supernatural power in us, through the grace of God, that we are able to overcome the sins that separate us from him. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this is foreshadowing the great conflict that would culminate at the cross of Christ, which is saying about that, lead me to Calvary. And really, the whole plan of salvation, while it's unfolded in the sanctuary, it would not be possible if Jesus had not died for us on the cross. As we partake of the Passover by faith, and of course, the Passover was discontinued, and therefore is continued now in the communion service, as we think about the symbols and the emblems and how it pointed to Christ, if it weren't for this promise to be able to put enmity in our hearts against sin, there would be no point. Because naturally, we're inclined towards our selfish ways. And God says, but I know that selfishness isn't the currency of happiness in the universe. Selflessness is what really brings joy. And I want you to see that your selfish ways cause death. Every time a sinner would come to that very entrance and learn to praise God, and he's, he approached the priest and he brought that lamb and it was sacrificed, he would realize Yes, I can praise God that he's willing to make a way for me. But also he was brought with this realizing sense that sin is expensive. Sin causes death and it causes pain. And realizing that that lamb pointed to Jesus would cause a realization of the power of God to be able to change the heart. Because the sanctuary message, if it doesn't reach our hearts, we're missing the experience. God wants us not to know just about what's going to happen, but to know him. John 17, 3, in whom is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So on that thought of how God wants to work in our lives, we see in Exodus 25, 8, that in order for this enmity, this hatred against sin to actually be a reality in us, where we would love God and hate sin, which is not natural, we would need to have a clearly outlaid plan. Originally, Adam, after he'd sinned, brought a lamb and a sacrifice. And we see that throughout the experience of even Abraham, when he brought his son, Isaac, which was pointing forward to Jesus, the son of God, and then a ram was given to spare his son, that yes, there were simple sacrifices that pointed forward, but God knew that after the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for so long, that their minds had become darkened. They didn't clearly comprehend what God's plan was for them. So God said, I'm going to make it even clearer. I'm going to give more detail. 
more specifications, and it will become brighter to them so they can learn, even though they come from many confusing ideas in Egypt, idolatry, all kinds of things, that now God was saying, here's my purpose. I want to restore the relationship that sin has broken. Exodus 25, verse 8. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's God's desire. He wants to be with us. But everything that was done here, verse 9, was after a pattern. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. In other words, everything that Moses was instructed to do was not according to his own wisdom. It wasn't his idea. It was that he had seen by faith the reality in heaven, and he was to be able to wisely guide in the construction of this beautiful, it was incredibly beautiful, sanctuary and tabernacle that would then travel with them through their wilderness wanderings as they learned the way of salvation and would prepare them to understand what Jesus would do for them. On that note, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we notice it's very clear that all this is pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus. And that's why we want to appreciate what he has done for us. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In light of, and if you read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear that the sanctuary services the Old Testament had a lot of significance pointing forward to the ministry of Christ and what he's now doing for us in heaven. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that they make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Moses was not to make any piece of it without following the clearly laid out specifications. It was after the pattern. And some have maybe questioned, well, is there really a heavenly sanctuary? Very clearly, biblically, there is. If you go to Psalm 102, verse 19, God himself is seeing all that's taking place on this earth from his sanctuary above. Psalm 102, and verse 19. And therefore, we want to approach God in the way that he has given us. Psalm 102, verse 19. Psalm 102, and we're looking at verse 19. The scripture tells us, for he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven did the Lord behold the earth. Jesus is ministering there for us now. And when he returns, the services in the sanctuary will be complete. He will be coming to take a people that he is transformed by his grace to be ready to meet him. And so fitting that we would learn to approach God the way he specified. And that is with an attitude of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving that he's made this whole plan for us to know how to experience Jesus, his grace, and his transforming power. Psalm 103, just one psalm over, verse 12, probably a familiar text to you, and yet it means so much more when you have the key to unlock its meaning with the sanctuary. Psalm 103 and verse 12, it tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Interestingly, just as I had shared with the children earlier that little model of the sanctuary, the gate of the sanctuary was on the east side, and the most holy place where God's actual presence was, was on the westernmost side. And so God's plan is that we start out at the east, and we journey by faith all the way west into the very presence of God. And that was God's intent, 
that as far as the east is from the west, following the sanctuary pattern, we would be able to be restored to our relationship with God. And so, how do we want to approach God? Well, if we go to Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 and following, we're going to see how the courtyard was described, and then we'll get to the gate, and we'll look at its meaning and significance together. Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 and following. So we're looking at the way that the courtyard, and it's interesting, if you look at the courtyard, there's a lot of bronze. There's a bronze labor. There's a bronze altar sacrifice. There's bronze pillars. Bronze in the Bible, and you look at how Jesus' feet also in Revelation are described as having like feet like unto brass or bronze. Jesus walked this earth. Bronze or brass represents things in the plan of salvation that must take place on earth. Then when you move to the holy and most of the place, everything is covered in gold, representing aspects of his ministry in heaven. Gold being representative of the things in heaven. So in Exodus 27, we're starting in verse 9, the scripture tells us, And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle, for the south side southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twine linen of an hundred cubits long for one side. And the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks and of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for the north side in length, there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long. And his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits, their pillars ten and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be fifty cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. Before we read verse 16 that describes the way that the gate was composed and its colors, let's unpack for a moment what is going on here with all these pillars. If you add up the number of pillars, it's 60. Total number of pillars is 60 pillars all the way around the sanctuary. And what does a pillar represent? And because we have to remember, God is trying to show us things about salvation and his plan for us. Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 3, and you want to hold something here in Exodus, we'll be back there. In Revelation chapter 3, in verse 12, we realize that a pillar has a specific relevance to God's people being victorious. Revelation 3 and verse 12, the scripture says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven for my God, and I'll write upon him my new name. Pillars here represent overcoming people. God wants you to be a pillar. But you'll notice that those pillars had to be all the way around, covered with this fine linen. What does that represent? Revelation 19, verse 8. Of course, Revelation is building on many of these symbols that are pulled in from the sanctuary earlier. So, Revelation becomes much more meaningful in light of the sanctuary. Revelation 19, and verse 8. The scripture tells us, And to her, the speaking of the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Christ's character is so wrought into the character of his people that it becomes their experience, this fine linen. So God wants to clothe us with this fine linen, this new character. And so the only way for us to be victorious and standing tall for Jesus is if Christ's character is wrought into our lives as we by faith accept his sacrifice and we let the Holy Spirit impart to us that new character where all the fruits of the Spirit are in our lives and not one is missing and we gladly, affectionately obey God's law of love. So as we think about this way that the sanctuary is composed, the tabernacle, Going back now to Exodus 27 and verse 16, 
We're going to look here at the entrance. This is on the east side, Exodus 27, 16. And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. Now, these colors have deep meaning. And you think about how each of the colors was to express a lesson for those who are coming by faith. For one, we want to realize that God invites us to approach him with praise. I love how in Psalm 22, verse 3, Psalm 22 and verse 3, the scripture tells us, and this is actually a crucifixion psalm, so Jesus even modeled this, that though he was going to die as our sacrifice, he still chose to praise God. Psalm 22 and verse 3. There's something that happens when we approach God in praise. Psalm 22, 3. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. God lives in the praises of his people. You want God's presence? Start praising him. He will come and live in your life through that presence of praise. Now, as we look at what the meaning of these colors are, blue is a representation of the law of God. And if you're taking notes, I'd invite you to jot these scriptures down. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 and 39, we see that the Israelites were to put a ribbon of blue on their garments. And this was that they would remember the commandments of the Lord. So a remembrance of God's commandments, his law, blue representing the law of God. And so it is that the law of God is a central part of praising him because how can you praise a God that you don't know his underlying character? That's unchanged. Then purple, we find that purple is associated with kingly royalty and honor. And Jesus himself in John 19 too was clothed with a purple robe. But then we look at scarlet and there's a little bit more to this color. I actually was really fascinated as I was studying it out that the color scarlet is in some ways associated with the firstborn. In Genesis chapter 38, 27 through 30, this is where Zerah reaches out his hand first and they tie a scarlet thread around him. And then he goes back in and Ferris comes out, but Zerah really had breached first. And Zerah is the line through which we see Jesus and he was considered the firstborn. And the only way for us to be saved is to come through the firstborn of heaven, Jesus, by his sacrifice. And it's interesting, another relevance, a scarlet, is Jesus, who in Matthew 27, we'll turn to this one, Matthew 27 and verse 28, when he was about to be crucified, they clothed him with a scarlet robe. Matthew 27, we're looking at verse 28. Matthew 27 and verse 28. The scripture accords, Matthew 27, 28. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. So here he is going to be our sacrifice. This scarlet, this sacrifice, you could say the color of blood as well. But then there's another Old Testament relevance to this, and we see its connection with faith. Because it's not enough to just simply experience Christ's sacrifice and know that he died for you. We need to have actual faith that it means something for us. It transforms our lives. And Rahab, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 18, had faith in the God of Israel, so much so that she put a scarlet line out her window, which was significant of her faith in the God of Israel, that her whole family would be spared. Joshua 2, we're looking at verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. Her life was spared because she had faith. She's even also recorded in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And it's interesting, she's also in the lineage of Jesus. Wow, what a privilege. So this sacrificial faith. And so if we look at all these colors combined, we see a picture of Jesus. Was he perfectly obedient to the law of God? Was he a king? And yet he came as a humble sacrificing servant. 
Then did he lay down his life as a sacrifice, and yet he had faith that his sacrifice was not in vain. All those colors represent Jesus, and even the fine linen, Christ's righteousness is what he offers us. That's the only way to fittingly approach God when we begin experiencing the plan of salvation. To enter into his gates, not because of how good we have been, but how good Jesus is to make a way for us to be saved. You know, as we think about the beauty and the meaning of our service today and and partaking of communion, I was thinking about how the sanctuary fits so perfectly with communion because everything that we do here is pointing us forward to when the sanctuary services are culminated. Christ's ministry in the most holy places finally come to an end because he has a cleansed and transformed people. As Jesus was there on that night of his great sacrifice, as he contemplated what he was about to do and he was totally willing, as he was there in the upper room with the disciples, the twelve, and Judas had left and he wanted all of his disciples to praise God. It's interesting that Jesus does not dwell upon his incredible trial that's about to face him, but he joins them in a song of the Passover Hallel. And you notice this in Psalm 117, this would have been the song that they sang that night as Jesus was about to go to Gethsemane. After that, he would be crucified. And the sacrifice that had been foreshadowed for thousands of years through the sanctuary service was about to be complete. Jesus was about to die as the culminating sacrifice. And so he wanted them also to enter into the spirit and atmosphere of praise. Psalm 117. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. As we praise God for his character. Maybe it would be tempting for a sinner who is bringing his lamb to feel so weighed down by guilt that he felt he had nothing to thank God for or praise God for. But I think that if we realize that our first words out of our mouth are praise to God and thanksgiving that he has a way for us. I mean, if he didn't want to save us, he wouldn't have sent Jesus on such a long and painful and expensive voyage to our world to save us. We can fittingly begin experiencing the plan of salvation with praise for what God has done and who he is. He's the author and finisher of our faith. So Jesus has modeled this at every step. He begins knowing that he's about to be sacrificed with praise. He realizes that this is the focus, praising God for his character. And as Christ considered it a joy to go to the sacrifice, a joy to go to the cross, what a fitting way for us to embrace this communion service that we say, Lord, it's a joy that we get to have a fresh start. You know, I think about how every time we come to the communion service, in many ways, it's like a new start. God's saying like, press the restart button. The past is the past. The blood of Jesus cleanses and atones. Let's start new. And the devil is always trying to get on your track and say, but what about, well, what about, and he tries to bring up all the stuff of your past. And God says, how about you look at me? How about you look at Jesus? How about you focus on my sacrifice and let your sins go? Believe that I can cleanse your conscience and have a new beginning. And that's exactly what God wants to give us. He knows we need this. And so we're blessed to be able to partake of this. I like how Hebrews 12, verse 2, shows us the spirit in which Jesus was undergoing the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 12, we're looking at verse 2. And truly, the purest joy springs from the deepest humiliation. And Jesus himself has shown this. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Scripture tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Indeed, Jesus with joy went to the cross. And so it's with joy that we can come to him as the door of our salvation, the gate, the entrance. 
He said this in John chapter 10, verse 9. Notice these words, John chapter 10 and verse 9. And it's interesting because if you were to look at the sanctuary, there was no other way to get in. There's lots of theories and philosophies out there that tell you if you would just pray this many times or go on this pilgrimage or you'd do this, that you could finally have peace. But there's no way of salvation. There's no peace. There's no way to be set free from sin except that we come through Jesus, the door. And so there was only one way. Every time a sinner would come to that gate, praising God, he would turn his back on the east, which was where the sun would rise. It was turning your back on all the ways of the world, all the philosophies of the world, all the sun worship, and saying, I'm approaching God in the way he's appointed me. So John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And I think about when I arrive at my home, I usually try to make sure that I have the right key my door before I approach the door. Otherwise, I'm like fumbling around. I've got like, you know, six keys here. I'm like, which one is it? And they all look pretty similar. And I think about that's in many ways where a lot of well-meaning people are in our world today. They're not quite sure what's the reason for the world being the way it is and why isn't Jesus yet here. But while it's true that we need to understand the key, which is the sanctuary, it unlocks these mysteries. There's another key that we can't miss. I love how Steps to Christ, page 94, paragraph 2 says, Prayer is the key in the hand of faith. And so if prayer is the key in the hand of faith, what is its purpose? To unlock heaven's storehouse where are treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence. All the beauty and the glory of God's character will be open to us as we see through the sanctuary, not just we know about it intellectually, but by a life of earnest prayer and surrender to God, it becomes our experience that we live new lives in Jesus. That's what the communion is about. It's about coming to this in prayer, believing in faith that Jesus does atone for your sins, that you cannot atone for your sins. You cannot be good enough. You cannot try hard enough, but you can yield the whole heart to him and let him cleanse and purify and renew you. I'm so thankful that Jesus has made that way for us. He's the door. He's the entrance. And he says, come to me. Praise me that I've made this way for each and every one of us. And so today, if it's your decision to come by faith to Jesus as the door of salvation, And say, Lord, I want to praise you that you've made a way for my life to be cleansed and transformed. If that's your desire, I invite you to stand with me now. Praise the Lord. Jesus is inviting us to a new beginning, a journey of faith. And we're so thankful that we can come to him as the door. Praise the Lord. And if there's anyone here also that wants to take that step of faith to the point of saying, yes, Lord, I want to also prepare either for baptism or rebaptism. Would you like to raise your hand? Anyone here? Amen. Praise God. God sees those hands. Amen. Well, let us kneel in prayer and ask the Lord to seal each decision that we've made tonight. As we said, Lord, we want to enter that door. And for those who want to be baptized or rebaptized, that they would continue that journey of faith and discovery and preparation. Father in heaven, we've come to you in faith today through your appointed way, through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to transform us. Lord, that you would seal the decisions that have been made and that they would not be a decision we simply make today, but they would be something that we would enter into as a continuous experience of growth and walking with you. Thank you, Father in heaven, for your promises, for your love, and for this opportunity we now have to be able to appreciate what you've done for us as our suffering sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Pastor Sean Brizendine. 
pastor of the Houghton Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you've enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath? I'm sure he'd be glad to meet you.